This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome back to Practical Spirituality here in the Old City of Jerusalem overlooking the Western Wall at Asia Torah. So I've been in New York for the last two and a half weeks and did a lot of work with people. And really, really happy to be home. I just want to be home. And now I'm home. And uh, with the coronavirus crossing the earth, could be I'll be here for a while because the it just it seemed to me like I should get back here quickly before airports shut down and stuff. Well, you have the coronavirus. I don't. Do you, Avina? No, no, no. No, no. I wasn't in China. I was in New York, and and and. Anyway, but the, it's very interesting, this whole, like, what's going to happen with all the travel and stuff, and what's going to be with that. Okay, let's get started. Um, today we're going to discuss, today we're going to discuss the desert. The desert, if you go down, especially Israel's deserts, and a lot of deserts are like this, but it's flat, very flat, and uh, the, the flatness of the desert is a lesson to us, and that that horizontal position is the horizontal position of of surrender. You know, when you're a human being, is an upright creature, and that uprightness is also the ego, too. I mean, there's no being with greater ego than human beings. We are the ultimate ego, and and you'll notice, actually, most of your day and most of your um, motivations are ego-based. And, and some healthy and some not so healthy. And um, But to get to our next level in life, to get to anywhere we really need to be, there's a surrender of going back to the desert, going back to flat, just zeroing out into that flat mode where you're just flat out and there's no there's no stature there's no you know the human stature is it's been knocked down um, most people need to be knocked down to get to their next level in life um, very few people are so intensely proactive in their growth that they can stand in a stat perfect stature and grow to their next level most people need to get knocked out to to grow. Uh, you just see in this class, for example, how many people we got in here? I don't know. About 10 of you. Uh, maybe 12 of you. Uh, raise your hand if, if you grow. Well, I'll give you your two options. And everyone has to vote. Even this lady knitting over here. Is that, <laughs> is that do you grow pers- like, what makes you grow? Do you grow because you're proactive in your growth? Or do you grow because Stuff happens, and you have to grow through it. Okay? So here we go. Everyone's got to vote. And I, by the way, it could be you grow from a little of each. I'm saying the one you grow the more from. What do you, what do you usually grow more from? Are you, are you putting yourself in the line of fire of growth, or are you more stuff happens, and then you grow through it? Okay, you ready? So raise your hand if you put yourself in the line of fire of growth, and that's how you get most of your growth. Okay, to you, and I imagine you all raise your hands, but let's just see you follow instruction. And for the rest of you, raise your hand if you have to go through stuff, and then you go through stuff, and then you grow. 
The lady knitting didn't raise her hand. But I'm questioning what language she speaks. So, what language? Where are you from? Sarfati. Uh, she said she's from France, but she said it in French. Now I understand why she didn't raise her hand. Now, the... <coughs> So most of us grow through going through stuff. That's how most of us get the growth. That we, um, you know, that, that we have. Now, what does it mean for those of you, like two of you voted for throwing yourself in the line of fire. What do you do? What, what? You'll challenge yourself. You have an example of how... What kind of challenge would you throw throw at yourself? <laughs> you put yourself in the hardest class, yeah. Yeah, I, every time there's something uncomfortable, I feel uncomfortable doing. I put myself to do it. When he's uncomfortable doing something, he puts himself to do it. He throws himself in the line of fire. How you doing? Nice spot right here next to my no, cameraman. Move that box. It's a good spot. Yo, what's up? You can sit next to that lady right here if you want. Sometimes what? Sometimes I choose comfort too. You choose comfort. So I, I, I think all of us do a little of both, but most of us need to go through something to grow. You know what I'm talking about? Going through stuff to grow? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? You've got to go through stuff. And grow through stuff. So the truth is you don't really have to grow through stuff. You can throw yourself in the line of fire. You know, some people do throw themselves in the line of fire. I think, you know, when, when people come to my seminars, I just ran three seminars in New York. When those people walk in there, they, you know, I'm crushing them because you have to surrender. So I have to crush their, you know, crush their egos down to get them to the surrender moment so that they can do the work because, you know, it's not their work. They don't know what they're doing. So if they, but you, it's the funniest thing that people will approach a completely foreign subject or a completely foreign uh, personal growth program their way, which is really funny because you don't know where you are. You don't know what's being said. You don't know what the schedule is. You don't know what the information is coming down. So why would you go, why would you try to do that your way? But you notice that people are really holding on to their like old underwear, so to speak, meaning they're just, I was having in mind undershirts, by the way. So, but you'll see that people just don't want to give it up, which means they're not really going to grow which means to run such a program, you have to help them give it up, you know, kind of intensely. And what's great about it is, is, the, um, is the fun part is usually there's someone in the audience that's going to fight. You know, because of the five fears of human beings, uh, the third is out of control. And they're going to feel quite out of control in those circumstances and probably fight. I'll never, remember, I'll never forget the, uh, this, like, Guy, I, he must have been 65 years old. He was everyone's senior in the group, and he asked when the break was. 
you know, it's a 12-hour day, so it's like, when's the break? You know, like at least the first break you wanted to know. <laughs> Which was my opportunity, because I had been watching his body language for a while. He had been squirming for at least two hours at this point. And uh, I could tell he was extremely uncomfortable with being in this situation. And so he said, he was like, when's the break? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm leading the program, so like, how is that possible that he's sitting already two hours and I don't know when the break is, you know? And he's like, I demand to know, you know, there's someone's coming over here to pick me up and take me somewhere I need to go during the break. So I need to know when the break is. And I'm like, well, I guess that's frustrating. <laughs> when I said that, he just blew his stack. He just blew his stack. He just lost it. At which point I crushed him completely. And then the whole group just suddenly like got locked in, including him. And he was just like touche, you know. Like, Why did you crush him? I just doubled down. I just doubled down on the fact that I can't, because I, his whole thing was like he needs to know when the break is, and I just doubled down that that I don't, I myself don't know when the break is. You, there will be a break, and when the break comes, it will be the break, and you can call your friend then to come get you, uh, and whatever. But I doubled down on him, and that made the whole program. And I kind of hope for something like that, that we get a good fight like that. And then we can get everyone to the desert, which is flat out. Because flat out, when you're when you're when you're been knocked down, you can grow. So it's funny that that there are those of us who are the, ma the majority of people, as you saw out of this room that, you know, it's like now it's swole, swollen to 16 people maybe, that two of the people are, are proactive growers who would put themselves in the line of fire. But what does it mean to put yourself in the line of fire? And the answer is you're going to get shot down. Like you give yourself challenges that shoot you down and you get you put yourself in the highest classes and they shoots you down and and you get knocked down hard. Because generally if you put yourself in the line of fire proactively, which is a lot nicer because it's usually a simulated environment, it's not your actual life. It's simulated, it's safer than your actual life where God usually sends you, you know, starts throwing snowballs at you. You know, and the and so it's better to be pro obviously it's better to be proactive but generally we need most people need to get knocked down to get to work but even if you do it proactively you still got to get knocked down it's just that you're you're putting yourself in a situation where you're going to get knocked down which is what you guys do but knocked down is the the state we're looking for um someone had a question oh you had a question yeah You're wondering if you have the other ones as well. <laughs> you do. They're, 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 everyone has all five. So they're the rejection, failure, out of control, the unknown, and physical pain and suffering. Okay. If you're from England, you have all five dominant at all times. <laughs> Unless you're raised observant. We raised observant. Ah, so you're off the hook. 
because yeah, observing communities, no matter where they live, aren't really from there. Like, for example, she's raised in London. So the closest, the furthest observant... London? Manchester. Manchester, sorry. Manchester. <laughs> Not Manchester. Manchester. So, so the, um, the furthest Jewish community from there is, I guess, probably the Jewish community of Los Angeles. So she would have more in common with the Jewish community in Los Angeles than anyone in London. Because the Jewish communities are bubbles in the countries they live in. She would have British o- overtones. You know, For example, you'd probably hold in your pain. Like let's say you had to express something to your husband because he hurt your feelings. So you'd, like a Californian observant person would probably wait about an hour to tell him. Which is longer than secular Californians. Secular Californians, it's instant feedback if you've upset somebody. Whereas you, you, let's say you married an L.A. guy and wound up living in L.A., so you tell him in like about three weeks, you know, after eating your heart out or something. <laughs> so it would still have like British overtones, you know, where you just kind of hold it all in for a while. I suggest drinking lots of uh, vegetable juice. Now, um, tends to get things running. And the, the um, what was I thinking about? Oh, by the way, you want to know something amazing about Los Angeles? You know, people let you know immediately when you're bothering them. And you know why that is? Because in Los Angeles, it's a really interesting culture. Um, you see in the world there are 10 personality disorders in LA there are 9 because being a narcissist is not a disorder you're in LA the um, it's an agreed thing there's just this agreement that you're supposed to live life to its fullest and for you that may mean paying little or no attention to anyone in the room, you know? So, so you're living life to its fullest, and everyone else can't hear themselves think because you have your Bluetooth speaker on full blast, you know, to some dance music, while meanwhile your cousin's doing yoga in the, in the, you know, in the living room. Now, if you live in L.A., the cousin doing yoga either is going to start doing yoga to, a, to the rhythm of your dance music, or they're going to yell you shut that off? I'm doing yoga. And then the one dancing with, the, with you know, their speaker will look over and see, oh my gosh, hi. You know, and then shut off their speaker. And they're cool with that. Someone was doing yoga in this space. Didn't realize. Sorry. You know, and it's like, boom. It's like, quick. Everyone's quick. And, you, and so the principle is, if anyone's bothering you, tell them. Do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it. If anyone's bothering you, tell them, and, they, and everyone reacts nicely to that. Which is, I mean, again, it's, it's nuts. I, don't, I personally wouldn't want to live there, but it works for them. So it's like, you, but here's the funny thing, is when you put an L.A. person <laughs> with anyone else in the world, you know, and, and it might be all of California, but if you put them with like, you know, like the, the L.A. girl marries a New Yorker, whereas New Yorkers are like, let's see if this would bother anybody. You know, they look around, they're like, they're about to do something. Let's take a look at who this would impact. 
which it sounds like an adult move. You know, let's, let's see who this is going to bother. You know, and then you check it out. And, and if you really want to do it, you say to everybody, like, I know this might be a nuisance, but do you all mind if I do such and such? You know, whereas in, in L.A., you just do it. And people tell you immediately. Like, they'll just say so right, right there. And no, one, no one's going to wait even a second. And no one's offended at all in the, in the exchange. Just the way the society works. <clears throat> One thing that may not go over very well, though, in California is, is uh, flattening somebody as a personal growth guru. Because that might not go over so well in L.A., whereas in the rest of the world, so might go flat like the desert, flatten somebody. What's that? In L.A.? It's very uncomfortable to be flattened by somebody, you know? See, if you're, uh, where are you from, this Jew over there? From Lo- oh, really? Cool, cool. So this dude from London over here, if, uh, if you opted to do some program that included the leader flattening you out totally, like a pancake, yeah? So the adult in you would say, you know, you, you paid the price, you know, you joined. You know, the adult in you would say, you know, get flattened out. The kid in you would be like, I'm going to kill this guy. Kidding you would be very uncomfortable, but between the adult and the child, from if you're from England, the adult wins. Not every time, but a lot. East Coast, New York, also the adult wins. In LA, a child always wins. A child always wins. So, so they're they're not going to want to get flattened out like that, because the child doesn't want to get flattened out. It's the adult that can remind itself that it paid to be there. You know, I paid for this. I'm supposed to be getting flattened out. Okay, now, who got the tour at Mount Sinai? The Jews, yeah. Who was in charge of going up there and uh, spending 40 days and 40 nights uh, fasting? That was Moses. He was flattened out. Moses was the flattest guy in the world. He was known for that. In fact, Moses went through an interesting uh, situation he, he had to go through stuff. And one of the main things that he went through that was particularly important was that there's a great story that when Moses was a baby, during that time, the um, necromancers, uh, how do you say, the Khartoumim, the magicians, I don't know, what do you want to, what do you call the sorcerers? The, what do you call the black magic people? Yeah, what do you call those guys in English? Uh, are they called necromancers? Oh yeah, necromancers are like they they raise the dead. Yeah, well they probably did that too. But um, anyway, Paro, Pharaoh had his own, uh, you know, magicians who were involved in black magic, and and it's an un, it's an unexacting science. It's a science, but it's unexacting. And so what they had were able to decipher was that. The was that a messiah, a messianic figure was going to be born and it was going to save the Jews. 
What was unexacting about it was they weren't sure if it was born yet. Another thing is they weren't sure if it was Jewish or Gentile. They didn't know if it was a Jew or a Gentile. And so you, you all probably thought when, the, when they were throwing the firstborn boys into the water, all the boys into the water when the boys were born, you probably thought that was only the Jews, right? Every boy, no matter who was born, if it was male, into the water. Because it was, as I said, it was an un, un, you know, unexact science. And so everyone was getting thrown in, in the river. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that could get confusing in the when they're looking at the stars and stuff. Yeah. Not, it's a Jew in the non-Jewish house being raised by Pharaoh himself. Anyway, but I, I guess some of the sorcerers had a suspicion that it was him. And they told Pharaoh, uh, we think it might be the actual baby growing up in your home, that that's the actual Messiah who's going to save the Jewish people. So we think you should do him in. But meanwhile, this was... Pharaoh's daughter's adopted kid. And, you know, you don't want to get in trouble with your daughter. Anyone who's a dad knows that. And so they decided to do a test. So the test was they put a a gorgeous gem, you know, like something like probably hardly any of us have ever seen in our lives, uh, but a gorgeous glowing, like, I don't know what it was, a sapphire or who knows what, a big gem, and a ruby or something. And then next to it, they put a burning coal in the same, sh- like in a similar shape. So a gem and a burning coal. And they figured that, uh, that you know, it wasn't the exact same shape. It was a coal. <laughs> it was a burning coal. But it shined. So two shining things, a, uh, like a ruby and a burning coal. And they said, well, if he's really, you know, supposed to be like the king of Israel, so he's going to go for the ruby and not the burning coal. He'll go for the one that's like the real deal. You know, he's not going to go for a hot coal. And so Moses, behold, went straight for the gem to grab the gem. But just then, an angel moves his hand to the coal. And he touches the coal and he lifts the burning coal because a baby put it straight in his mouth. And burns his tongue with the with the coal, and messed up his ability to speak. Wouldn't any baby? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How is that a test? It was like a suicide mission. You know, I guess I'll answer it like this. It's a medrash. <laughs> so, but what it did cause is, and this part is not a medrash, is uh, a speech impediment that was so severe that Moses was uh, basically kind of rendered mute. Not that he couldn't talk at all. He could talk, but he just, you know, you can imagine if, People who have, let's say, a terrible stutter will, are going to talk a lot less, you know, knowing that this may flop. You know, so Moses had a heavy speech impediment. And as a result, 
And there's something about being inarticulate that someone can feel terribly humbled in front of others. A speech impediment is, is um, well, let's just put it like this. We'll say that someone who is articulate is able to, uh, is able to display his intelligence before all. Whereas someone who's inarticulate is not going to be able to do that. And all of us, you'll notice in your own life, you have the pressure on when it's your turn to talk. Even if you raise your hand and ask a question in here, there's a certain pressure to articulate the question well. Just the way it is. You know, you got to articulate the question well. And I always feel bad not honoring a question that was not well articulated, meaning to the point where sometimes none of us are quite clear what the question was even because it wasn't articulated so well. And we, we don't know what he's really saying. And then I have to say, can you rephrase that, please? And so, but, you know, after enough people telling you to rephrase things, you're just going to stop talking altogether, certainly in public. So Moses was kind of on that trajectory. And though that is not a Jewish form of humility, because Jewish has, Judaism has a different definition of humility, it nevertheless is humbling. It's very humbling. And caused him to become you know, this extremely humble character. Now, there's another thing that helped with the humility. And the other thing that helped with humility was that he spent his, most of his adult years by himself. Because he ran from Egypt pretty quickly. The Pharaoh was after him for having killed an Egyptian taskmaster. And uh, he, he ran, wound up in a country called Midian, and he became a shepherd. So he spent his time alone. And that time alone was very humbling as well. The desert's very humbling altogether, to live in the desert. And that's what he did. He lived in the mountains of Midian and spent most of his time by himself with the, with the sheep and the goats. His father-in-law's herd, and, um, which meant a couple things. I mean, it meant, uh, you know, that lead to leadership. Uh, you want to brainstorm a few? One is caring. Yeah, take care of the flock. We spoke about the humbleness because you're not, you're not going to be the big guy in town because you're not in town. You know, that's not your life. Your life's by yourself. So there's humility. It's perseverance. A lot of things. One class we actually listed about 20 attributes that would happen to someone who was a shepherd full-time. Anyway, but once he was this humble person, he was the person who could get the Torah from Mount Sinai. Now, what is, what is humility on that level not so good for? Public speaking, okay, maybe. What else? What? Standing up for yourself, okay. Leadership. Leadership. You'll find generally leaders are... Uh, I mean, look at Netanyahu and Trump, for example. Those two are like, those two are like cousins or something. They're like, they're like Siamese twins. <laughs> it's really strange how the you know, and Putin on the other side. And Netanyahu is such a hot shot that he's got 
he's got Putin and uh, Trump in his back pocket. There's not too many world leaders who can just be like, call either one of them and say, yeah, I'm coming in, you know, coming in for tea. And Netanyahu just perfectly pulls it off. This is why uh, tomorrow's the vote for Israel. And it's like, it's just such a strange situation we're in because Netanyahu, this is his third try. His third try to be prime minister again. And, and, and there may even be better prime ministers for Israel, but there's no better uh, feared diplomat than Netanyahu, who, like, I mean, he's the only prime minister we've ever had that was, that was an enemy to the U.S. president, you know? You know what kind of courage that takes? You know, the U.S. is Israel's heroin dealer, and Israel's the addict, and the... And the prime ministers, the prime ministers, the what do you call the guy who goes to get the drugs? Um, the, the, the drug runner, what do you call it? What? Oh, the mule. Yeah, I think they call. It. Netanyahu is the mule, and the mule that goes to get get it. And what does he do? He just like, he refused to bend over for Obama. You know, he's just not going to bend over for that guy. And he just, every time Obama tried to like put Israel in great jeopardy, Netanyahu just said, you know, basically said, shove it. You know, you're putting our country in jeopardy for your own diplomatic reasons. And no. And they just hated each other. They couldn't even talk. It was crazy. Like they, they only spoke when they absolutely had to. And it's really interesting, like the courage of Netanyahu. And I mean, anyone else is prime minister of Israel. I don't think there's anyone in this room, myself included, who could play such a game <laughs> with the prime minister, with the president of the United States. You know, your drug dealer, like you're going to mess with El Guapo over there. You know, you don't mess with El Wapo. And, and, but he does. He does. Netanyahu's like, he's not messing around. You know, he's, Israel's security is all he thinks about. And so, and which is really strange as the observant community backs Netanyahu, which is really strange because, you know, I don't know what his track record is as far as uh, good attributes are concerned, but I have a feeling he's more like Trump when it comes to character traits. And so, hey, what's up? You brought me a student. You want to sit up here? Come. How you doing, mate? Good. Where are you from? <laughs> we had a whole class on L.A. today. Yeah. Wow, nice biblical shoes, bro. Those are cool. Where'd you get those? I know. We were just talking about Moses. What's your name? John Kyle. John Kyle. Nice to meet you. You want to play? You're born and raised in LA. No, no, I was born and raised in Boise, Idaho. Uh-huh. I live in Atlanta. I got it. What neighbor? Uh, North Hollywood. Cool. My roommate from Asia Torres lives in North Hollywood. His name is Brad Schachter. You know Brad? Yeah. What do you play? 
He, he's had the biggest wedding band in L.A. Brad's, Brad's the leader of the wedding band. That's why I mentioned it. I didn't think you just happened to know my roommate. <laughs> yeah, he's a well-known guy. Anyway, um, anyway, but back to, back to this, yeah, to Moses, is that, is that that kind of humility gets the tour, but it's not great for leadership. Leadership requires, you know, a certain level of, uh, of power. Yeah? Yeah, it, it is. It is for sure. And it could be Moses knew when to be big. But every time the Jews came up to him with a problem, and they had lots of problems, you know, they were always complaining to him. He always went like, you know, talk to him like, I'm not your guy. You know, like, he really wasn't the guy. His brother Aaron would have been the guy. But God didn't want it. Even when at the burning bush, when Moses is saying, take my brother, not me. You know, the burning bush, God says to him like, you know, go down, Moses, way down in Egypt's land. Everybody, to let my people go. So, the Lord tell Moses what to do. Let my people go. To lead the peep children of Israel through. Let my people go. So, <laughs> anyway. Um, Moses at the burning bush said the Jews have a leader. And who was it? It was his brother, Aaron, his older brother. He was a leader. Aaron was a serious leader. And so... When Moses said that, he wasn't kidding. He was saying, like, you know, I got the goods, man. Like, I'm happy shepherding. Like, just let me do my shepherding. The Jews have a leader. Take him out of Egypt. You know, I'll meet up with them later. You know, don't, please don't send me down there. Um, but God had something else in mind. He wanted it to be a one-stop shop type of leadership. Not a duel. Not a, like a leader like Aaron. And then a humble man like Moses. See, Moses had that super humility thing because you need that to get the Torah. Right? Torah only is going to... Torah is like water. It's going to go into the lowest place. You know, Like the, the, you know, this cup. It's going to go straight to... The, the water is going straight to the lowest spot. You know, that's where it's going to go. And so, and so it was clear that, that Moses is exactly the guy Taylor made for this job but not necessarily the guy to lead the Jewish people. God wanted it to be the same guy. There's a good reason why, probably, and maybe you can think of it. Yeah, Yosa. Why did he give what to Aaron? Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. And the priesthood's also, um, the priesthood's also not exactly leadership. You know, it's a different role. And it wound up with the leader. You know, Aaron got the priesthood. They're both Levites, you know, so it could have, it could it would have made much more sense for the priest to be the humble guy, yeah. not Aaron, the more leadership type. Um, so, what? Meaning like hitting the rock and stuff yeah, and yeah, yeah. Like killing the Egyptian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 
Apparently, it wasn't temper when he hit the rock. He was just remembering the first time. See, God said to Moses to speak to the rock. But the first time, God said to hit the rock. There were two times that there was rock from a water. So the first time, he told him to hit the rock. Take your staff, hit the rock. He hit the rock, water came out. Second time, he said, speak to the rock. So Moses spoke to the rock. Hey, rock. Spoke to the second rock. How are you? He, second time, no water. I don't recall if there was a third time even. I think it was twice he spoke to the rock. No water. He should have spoken a third time, apparently. Like three was the trick or something. But he was like, hey, speaking's not working. Let's go with the original, you know, because he had already used a stick the first time. So he's like, maybe I misunderstood something. Bam, hits it with a stick, water comes out. He thought he'd like, you know, it looked good. Looked like he did the right thing. But uh, he got majorly busted for that. But it wasn't a temper thing. Yeah, it wasn't a temper thing. Even killing the Egyptian was, uh, it was the right kind of temper. Because the, because uh, he was, you know, beating Moses' brother, and this was kind of Moses' point of, of uh, identification with the Jewish people. It was a major moment where a Jew was getting beaten to death by an Egyptian taskmaster. Moses is Egyptian. He's in Egyptian clothes, speaks Egyptian, raised in the kingdom. An Egyptian name, Moses, is not, Moshe is not Hebrew. That's, that's Egyptian. So, like, so like he's got... He's, it's a question who Moses is exactly early in the Torah. You know, early in the story. It's a question who he is. You know, he's not, not really, not really, sh- it's not so sure who he is. You know, he, that was a, that was the moment. The moment when he decided to kill one of his father's servants, meaning Pharaoh's servants, for beating up his brother. The Jewish person. That was the uh, the seminal moment of who Moses was, where he had, you know, basically that was station identification for Moses at that point. Now, but I do want to answer your question about Aaron because Aaron is not the obvious choice for the priesthood. Aaron would have been better to lead the Jews. Moses would have been better for getting the Torah and doing the priesthood. Um, but there is something that Aaron did have that leaders have that was going to be, was going to be very important for priesthood, and, but very important, and that is attention to detail. Um, the, when I say French attention to detail, I'm talking uh, extreme attention to detail to the point of fear, like of blowing it. So um, Aaron had in his genes... Something that would okay, Rabbi. How would you say uh, kapdan, kapdanos? The what would you call that? This stuff that Kohanim have. I mean, he, the Rabbi here, he's in charge a lot of like Ishtor's student body who gets in the issue. I think he he's been doing this. How many years are you doing this? <laughs> I mean, you were do- I got here three decades ago. You were doing it. So I I think it's been a lot of decades. So. But when we had a Cohen in this place, like one of the people, direct line of Aaron, it was like, you know, they were pretty heavy characters, man. They're like, don't mess with him. You know, keep your dirty laundry in its location in the dormitory and don't let it spill over towards the Cohen because you're going to hear about it. They're, they're, so, 
so there a lot of what, what did the coin have to do? He would be up here on the Temple Mount. Exhibit A, the Temple Mount. Now, how many classes can you go to where they start talking about the Temple Mount and it's right outside the window? So, Exhibit A, the Temple Mount. So, the a lot of a lot of the laws up there are so specific, and many of them carry the death penalty. Many of them carry, many carry the death penalty. They're also not allowed to have had any alcohol before the service. And they have to just be totally on it and totally sharp and and even a little nuts. Even a little nuts about about the details. They have to be a little for a Cohen, what you diagnose as O C D for a regular Jew for a Cohen is still called normal. And the meaning that level of kind of obsession to detail. And that Aaron had and that a lot of leaders have. You know, if you think about the, if you think about the leadership of a CEO of a company, his attention to detail is that intense, and getting fired's easy. You know, meaning you be, you be lax about the details that he expects you to be, you know, having in mind, the likelihood of getting fired's like high. And so Aaron had that leadership, and that leadership has that attribute that a Cohen's going to do the right thing. Oh, you got one minute. It was one minute, really. Yeah, it's less. So, anyway, with that, with that being said, um, may we all be blessed to to be proactive growers and to and to get that kind of humility that leads to spirituality and uh, and good stuff. Shalom, everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.